Hey, uh, we're kicking off a Lent series. All that was just therapy time, I'm sorry, uh, at your expense, because uh, it's free. Um, but we're, we're starting a series on Lent today, and uh, we're going to be in a series on Lent all the way through Easter. And just a little bit about Lent for context. Lent is really a word that exists in a lot of different languages. It's um, kind of the, the, season, uh, the season leading up to Easter or spring in a lot of languages. In kind of the, the Greek and Latin, if you go all the way back, it just means 40th, which is really the 40 days, if you take away Sundays, uh, that go from Ash Wednesday all the way up till Easter. And so you see the word Lent in, in almost all languages. Some, sometimes it means lengthening because it's spring, so it's the lengthening of the days. So the word actually means a lot of different things, but really just grabs a period of time uh, leading up to Easter. Why? Well, um, you have this thing, Lent, that's celebrated or has been observed by faith traditions going all the way back to the early church, and it's not just the Catholic Church. By the way, when we say Catholic now, we mean it as in opposition to Protestant. For much of Christianity, there was kind of one Christian church, or, or the East and the West, if you will, and so they would have heard it a lot differently. There was kind of Christians and non-Christians, or Christians and Muslims, um, but when we say Catholic, we, we're, we're meaning something different that's just a 500-year kind of distinction, but it didn't go all the way back 2,000 years. But Lent is observed in the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church denomination. Uh, Lutherans observe Lent. Uh, some Anabaptists ob observe Lent. Uh, and there's other kind of Protestant churches that do it. And here's the big kind of thing that we need to grab is <clears throat> that Lent is not a, a Catholic thing. Um, it's also a Protestant thing. I just named a whole bunch of Protestant denominations. It has not historically been an evangelical thing. So if you're kind of coming to Lent and going, this is a bit different to me, I wasn't raised this way, or we didn't observe it or talk about it, it's not that it's not a Protestant thing, it's that it hasn't historically been an evangelical thing. And a lot of churches that have been in this evangelical tradition are looking at it and saying, we want to hold on to the good and also find the good in, in the Christian traditions, historic traditions that have existed for thousands of years and be able to grow and deepen and broaden ourselves so that we look more New Testament and also more historical than just kind of modern, if you will. And so we are entering into this Lent season. Lent goes uh, for 40 days because it's connected to fasting. Um, I mean, pretty much connected to fasting. Fasting doesn't just mean food only. It means abstaining from, from something really with the desire of, of disciplining yourself for waiting on the Lord, seeking out or waiting on the Lord, which if you read the Old Testament is really at the heart of all theology, is this idea of waiting on the Lord rather than going and striving or finding our own way. And so uh, this whole idea of 40 Jesus, 40 days in the desert, uh, 40 days of rain sent uh, for Noah's flood, the, the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years, this idea um, of, of 40 being this symbolic um, period that we see all throughout Scripture of what it means to kind of be purified or to come to where God 
uh, actually wants us to be, this, this training grounds, if you will. And so this idea of Lent is, is setting aside that season of the lengthening of days in spring to really sit into the reality in which we find ourselves. And the reality in which we find ourselves is this, that life is messy and God is mysterious. Life is messy and God is mysterious. And as you've heard me say before, we somehow think that life shouldn't be as messy as it is. And so whenever we find examples of the messiness of life, we think something is broke, something is wrong, and we, we really want to bend it back. And we think that God is somehow asleep at the wheel or not doing what he was supposed to do because life should be better than the pain or suffering that I find myself in. And when we seek out God, the crazy reality there is that God, his ways are higher than our ways, and that God is... Um, I want to, I don't know if this is theologically correct, but I want to say that God's an introvert. Um, he's, he's not really free with his words. Um, he's perfectly okay with a lot of silence. And if you notice, when God speaks, he doesn't waste a word either. Um, when God actually comes out and says what he's thinking, it's very direct speech. So we talked last week about um, just plain talk, direct speech, and Jesus, this whole idea of when, when Peter's kind of uh, consulting him to go, you know, maybe we can stave off this suffering. Uh, Jesus will stand with you, we'll fight with you. And Jesus turns to him and he's like, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God. Like, get behind me, Satan. Don't you understand this is actually where I'm supposed to go? This idea of direct or plain speech, God is um, the king of that. Uh, he doesn't waste a word. And so when we encounter the messiness of life and we, we come to God, we find that God doesn't speak as often as we wish he would. He doesn't speak um, as specifically to the questions we're asking as we wish he would, that when God does actually speak, he's usually pointing us somewhere else. And so there's this this inherent tension as we walk between the messiness of life and the mystery of God. That that's the reality that we find ourselves in. And so when we come to Lent, what we're reminding ourselves of are these themes that we're going to be exploring the next several weeks of humility and repentance and suffering um, and patience and today lament that these are a a natural part of, of the human experience, the Christian experience, in a world that is still broken and has not yet been fully put back together, where things are not as they're supposed to be, um, where we really can wail and, and cry out and lament. Ben read um, out of John chapter 16. If you want to turn there, I want to read it in my translation. We specifically had Ben read it in the King James, uh, rather that the, the New King James. Um, and I want to read it out of the NIV. And so if, if you wonder what the differences are of Bi in Bible translations, a lot of them are just newer versions that keep up to, date with, uh, up to date with the way we use language. So using more contemporary language to translate uh, the Greek or the Hebrew so that they're clearer, right? Um, there's other, two other ways that you can look at translations. One is much more of um, what's, what's called literal, which is 
really trying to translate word for word what is in the Hebrew or the Greek, but that gets a bit clunky because especially in the Greek, word sentence structure, word order is, is not the same as in the English. You kind of front load verbs and you, you embed in the verbs who's saying what and what the tense is. And so if you kind of try and do it very literally, it can be very, uh, the phrase would be wooden or clunky. So that's a literal translation. The ESV is a, a good literal translation. Uh, the NASB, if a lot of you grew up maybe in the 70s or 80s uh, with the NASB, New American Standard. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum is what's called a dynamic equivalency, which is trying to take the thought and you're doing thought for thought, not word for word. And kind of in the middle of the road or a bit more to the dynamic equivalent side is the new uh, international version, which is probably one of the most popular versions, the most popular version uh, of, of the Bible out there. If you get all the way to the dynamic equivalent, um, you're really talking about Eugene Peterson's The Message and things like that, which, which are really going after the deeper meaning but not really paying attention to um, the actual sentence or the words used in, in the original languages. Why do I bring that up? Um, let's read the same passage that Ben read. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll just start it in verse 19, actually. We'll just grab the whole chunk. But so John chapter 16, verse 19, this is in the NIV, and it says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, his disciples, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And verily, uh, very truly I say to you, you will weep and mourn while the, while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy uh, that a child is born in the world. Remembering that Jesus was a man, I think my wife might disagree a bit with the forgetting part. Um, and so this is true with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you're, uh, you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. But if we back up to the key verse here, verily, uh, very truly I say to you, you will weep and mourn, while the world rejoices. In the New King James that Ben read, it says you will weep and lament. Uh, the word mourn here being the, the word for lament. Why is it that in the more kind of up-to-date version of the Bible, in, in our language, the one that's supposed to be a bit easier for us to read and understand, we drop the word lament and just put mourn in there? Which, by the way, mourn... Um, it's something we only understand when someone dies or uh, our, our team loses the Super Bowl. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? But it's not, it's not really a day-to-day kind of word for us, mourn. But, it's, but it is more natural, evidently, than lament. So instead of going with the more natural translation of lament, we replace it with mourn. Why is that? I think it's part of this bigger issue of losing the ability to lament, and then in losing the ability to do it, beginning to even forget what it was in the first place. I want to read from Sung Chan Ra's prophetic lament. Uh, Sung Chan is a friend. He's a professor at North Park Seminary. He spoke at Antioch five years ago when he was working on this book, and he talked on lamentations. So some of you might actually remember that. So this book now came out about two years ago, and... Um, I want to read just a, 
several paragraphs from it. So here we go. Uh, and Soon Chan writes, The Old Testament is composed of many different genres, including poetry. Within the genre of poetry, um, ah, let's just back up just a bit. Um, he talks about shalom is active and engaged, going far beyond the mere absence of conflict. A fuller understanding of shalom is the key to the door that can lead us to a whole new way of living in the world. Feel free to close your eyes if it helps you to, to pay attention. It's story time right now. Um, if you have thoughts of kindergarten, you can sit in the aisles, um, cross your legs. Uh, there'll be snacks afterwards. Um, Shalom combats the dualism rampant in Western culture. And the dualism is this idea that there's good and bad, light and dark. Uh, that's the Greek way of thinking, and, and we've kind of patterned ourselves after that. Uh, and Shalom combats that dualism that's rampant in the Western culture and is instead rooted in a, in a more Hebraic passion for equilibrium, a sense of a system in which all of the parts cohere, Shalom, therefore, does not eschew or diminish the role of the other or the reality of a suffering world. Instead, it embraces the suffering uh, and the other as an instrument uh, and an aspect of well-being. Shalom requires lament. What he's basically saying is if you have this dichotomy between good and bad, the Greeks thought that the spirit was good and, and the material world, the body, the flesh, all that was bad. But, but you have good and bad and they're separate from each other. And what Soon Chan says throughout this book and wants to argue is that dualism creates this idea that if we're on the good side, there shouldn't be bad. And if we think we're on the good side, when we look at bad things in the world like poverty uh, in the third world or whatnot, we think it's our job to, to undergo um, the dispensing of goodness, usually in the form of money, sometimes in the view uh, of bringing our ability to think through and bring about success. But it's, it's the good guys over here bending down and helping those that are in kind of the bad spot. Like that, that dichotomy brings up this transactional way where we engage with the world. And so we miss the suffering that we ourselves experience a lot or a community like Antioch might experience and we look at suffering as being for other people in different places and somehow we should have something to bring to them. But when we come to our own suffering, we don't really have a language set for that. Does that make sense? And he's saying shalom actually says no, that the, the difficulty and the challenge and the pain and the messiness runs in and throughout it all. I have suffering in my life and pain. We have suffering in our community and pain. And we have to figure out how to deal with that, not in a transactional way where there are people that are outside of it and people that are inside of it. Shalom, argues Sung Chan, requires lament. Shalom requires lament because you can't fully get rid of the messiness. The Old Testament is composed of many different genres, including poetry. And within the genre of poetry exists many subgenres. Old Testament scholar Klaus Westermann situates the Hebrew poetic material into two broad categories, praise and lament. Westermann asserts that as two poles, they determine the nature of all speaking to God. It's fascinating. So a center of gravity here and a center of gravity here. And these two centers of gravity ultimately pull all language into some kind of orbit around them by which we understand all speaking to God. 
Psalms that express worship for the good things that God has done are categorized as praise hymns. Laments are prayers of petition arising out of need, but lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. It's a, a, a bigger idea than the emotion that I feel in the moment. It's a category of my Christian faith or my Christian community where we set aside time to actually rehearse lament, to remind ourselves of the reality of life, not to try to to help convince ourselves of the illusions that we live with often or the desires we have for how we think it could be, but rehearsing the idea that there really is pain and brokenness, that it does touch us and our neighbor, and that the only appropriate response is to sit before God in lament sometimes, sometimes in repentance, sometimes in humility, sometimes in patience, all of these things, awaiting God to speak into the brokenness that only he can ultimately fix. The good news is good news because we understand the context that it's spoken into. If life is pretty all right, then what's really the need we have for a Savior? Or maybe we begin to slowly reduce the importance to saying, um, having a Savior is not a bad thing. I'll just add it to to the list of things that I have in my life that I'm actually kind of glad about. I'm, I'm glad for the security I have in my financial situation, or I'm glad for the security I have that my kids have kind of patterned their life a certain way, or I'm, I feel very secure. I've got layer upon layer of defense between me and calamity, so I think. And so I, I feel pretty good about life. And so the Savior idea of Jesus is a good thing that I add into that, but it's not something that, that overwhelms me as, as the only thing that I can cling to. Um, in the desert, in that 40 years of wandering, there was a time when the snakes came and, and the vipers were biting people and Moses erected the brass snake in, in anticipation of what it would look like with Jesus on the cross. And when you looked to that, that bronze snake that had been erected, that would, just like Peter looking at Jesus when he was walking on water, that was the faith moment that preserved you. But when you got distracted from that... Um, and, and, and weren't operating in faith, then vipers were biting you. And in the urgency of that moment was born this idea that the only thing that really matters is that Savior, that place we can put our faith, where, where God will meet us, where ultimately we can find a way out of the calamity around us, the pain or the suffering. And so sometimes the ways we uh, numb ourselves or the ways we put up the defenses or the walls around ourselves um, get in the way of our truly understanding how desperate we should be for for the cross. Um, Lament is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering, and it engages God in the context of that pain and suffering. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated to him through lament. Unfortunately, lament is often missing from the narrative of the American church. In Journey Through the Psalms, Denise Hopkins examines the use of lament in the major liturgical denominations in America. The study found that in the Lutheran Book of Worship, the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer, the Catholic Lectionary, 
for Mass, the hymnal of the United Church of Christ, and the United Methodist hymnal, the majority of psalms omitted from that liturgical calendar were the ones using lament. This trend is found not only in the mainline traditions, but in less liturgical traditions as well. In Herding with God, Glenn Pemberton notes that laments constitute 40% of all psalms in the Bible. 19%, uh, but only 13% of the hymnal for the churches of Christ, 19% of the Presbyterian hymnal, and 13% of the Baptist hymnal um, include lament. Christian Copyright Licensing International, CCLI, if you see that, it's kind of where all the Christian songs are held, um, that licenses local churches in the use of contemporary worship songs and tracks the songs that, they're, uh, that they most frequently sing. Uh, on its list of the top 100 worship songs in August of 2012, uh, it revealed that only five of the 100 songs would qualify as lament. Most of the songs reflect themes of praise. How great is our God. Here I am to worship. Happy day. Indescribable. Friend of God. Glorious day. Marvelous light. And victory in Jesus. Um, these are... Uh, these are the songs we sing. And in rehearsing those, by the way, liturgy means the habits that we do, whether we know we're doing them or not. And in rehearsing those songs that are stilted kind of to a certain approach to God, where our language for God kind of finds its way to one of the poles, but begins to neglect the other pole, when we be begin to forget that our relationship with God is supposed to also include this, to include the lament, it it changes us. And I think it makes us prone to uh, an inability to cope with pain or suffering in our lives. It leads us to a point where when we've rehearsed this enough and we're hit with calamity, where all the defenses we put up are actually broken down, where our kid uh, that was patterned a certain way actually does go off the rails, where our health that was all dialed because we juice every morning and uh, do yoga every night, I don't know. Um, actually, we do get that doctor's report. And then we're faced with suffering. God, I had my life all figured out. Didn't you see that? How did this now happen to me? And I have no language because I haven't rehearsed, I haven't learned, I haven't become uh, accustomed to this pole or, or this center of gravity of how we talk to God, the messiness of life. And then the mystery of God overwhelms me at that point when I don't have the answers I want and I begin having to look to other places to try to cope. It's very different than um, our African brothers and sisters who I would say or, or argue, they would say it too, have a theology that was born out of suffering. When they were little kids, when they were growing up, when they were going to church, the, the, the songs they were singing, the people they were talking to, that suffering was all around them. And in that suffering, they learned how to talk to God. And so they have a theology, the words that we use to, to, to talk about God or to God. They have a theology of suffering, a language set for suffering, uh, a, a habit forms for for talking that through. And when new suffering comes, they're able to go back to this, where they already know God, where they've already found God, and converse with God about the suffering in their life and how they should understand and move forward. 
And so we end up finding that we have a really anemic faith when we don't have a language set for suffering. By the way, that's also why the transaction thing is really kind of funky because we can get caught up in this compassion ministry to poorer countries thinking that we're in the good, they're in a bad situation, it's our job to have this transaction down to them, but it's always at a, a distinction of, of kind of hierarchy, um, which means we're not really looking for anything to come back to us, which means we're not looking for relationship, which means all of the things that the church, say, in Africa or in South America or wherever, might be able to teach us that would help us to grow, we're not even open or listening for that because they're on the receiving end of our generosity or, or our assumption of success because um, we're the church that God has blessed or we're the ones that have figured it out. And so we lose the ability to actually be in relationship with the global church and the global church has things that can be learned and taught amongst each other. And we cut ourselves off from that. So I want to just run us through a couple biblical things with regard to lament. So here we go. Lament, just right off the bat, shows up the most in, um, in the book of Jeremiah. If you just do a word search on lament or the, the language set of lament, it shows up the most in Jeremiah, which is why... Uh, we believe that he was the author of the book of Lamentations. So the, the book that actually bears the name of lament, right? And so it shows up the most in Jeremiah, but if you look at Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah had a very difficult life, and God called him into that difficult life. So here's the point of this. Um, that lament actually is the outgrowth of, oftentimes, the calling that God gives us. Or that lament could be the natural or fitting response as we walk by faith into the calling that God has for us. Um, I don't know when we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Or how has God made me? What is he calling me to? I don't know that we're usually thinking that somehow um, this road or this destination is going to be marked by lament. I, I know that that wasn't my thinking kind of often. Um, but that's what we learned from Jeremiah. Lament shows up more in Jeremiah than any other place, and we realize that it's not uh, far from God. It's not far from God's calling. Often it's the very human response as we're walking with God into God's calling for our life. It's the proper and fitting response when God is either against us or far from us or ironically with us. Um, Ezekiel chapter 2. Turn there with me if you would. We'll read another big chunk here because it's worth it. Um, Ezekiel chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, again, you can close your eyes, you can listen along, but here's Ezekiel's call to ministry, if you will. He's being called to be a prophet, and in chapter 2 it says this, God says to me, son of man, which is a phrase that Jesus takes on himself as a phrase that was kind of uh, prefiguring Jesus and his ministry, and God says to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. 
They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending uh, sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them. Though they are a rebellious people, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. By the way, sometimes you say things the same way again and again for effect. Um, Clean your room. (laughs) I mean it. I don't care if it's your sister stuff. Clean your room. Like, this is kind of what's happening. You must, I want you to know what I'm saying. Don't be afraid. Usually when God says don't be afraid, what can you surmise? There's going to be something to be afraid about. Um, That's a little bit of what I was wrestling with uh, earlier. But you, son of man, listen to what uh, what I say to you. Do not rebel like the rebellious people. Open your mouth and and eat what I give you. By the way, God doesn't just speak straight words. He also speaks really weird words. So here's, here's, here it goes. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. This is in the, this dream, this prophetic vision. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me and in it was a scroll and this was God uh, unrolled this before me and on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe and he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you, eat this scroll, that's the weird part, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, son of man, eat the scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And he then said to me, son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israelite are not willing to listen to me because they are not willing to, uh, they're not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me, for they become hardened and obstinate. This is fascinating. He says, I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are rebellious people. Again, it's, I'm calling you to something that's going to be scary. So God has lament written down. God's lament is written down. Ezekiel eats and digests God's lament, God's own sadness over what is happening with his people. And then Ezekiel is is literally supposed to speak the words of God. Again, prefiguring Christ who said, I only speak what I'm given to speak or do what I'm given to do. And as Ezekiel speaks these words, he's basically speaking the lament of God over people. The funny thing is that the Psalms, the 40% of them that include lament, these are the inspired prayers of the Bible that are are supposed to be there to, to give language to our prayers and to teach us how to pray. When we're praying the Psalms, we are speaking the laments of God back to God. Um. 
That's crazy. The other thing here is God says you're doing this not as a missionary. You're not, I'm, not, I'm not calling you and sending you to Nineveh or to other places and you're going to go speak my words to them, Ezekiel. I'm sending you to the Christians. I'm sending you to my people. I'm sending you to my community. They speak your language. You know their customs. They understand you. They actually don't think much of you. Um, they're not going to treat you well. But I'm calling you to go speak my words to them. You have this prophetic kind of call, and it's going to be a, a challenge. Um, the teaching voice, uh, if, if, I want, if I want to just talk about different voices, a teaching voice is, is how we provide information, context, and we're drawn along. We as a community, if there's teaching that's happening here, we, we, we move along as we learn. Does that make sense? The prophetic voice uh, comes along and elicits a strong response. And, and oftentimes, when the prophetic voice is uttered, there are a lot of people that react negatively to it because it steps on toes. It calls into questions where, uh, it calls into question where we've become complicit with, say, culture or other, other value systems that aren't what God would have for us. And it feels abrasive or difficult. It's very hard to be prophetic as a pastor in your own church. You lose a lot of friends really quick. Um, you lose your church really quick. So I've kind of, as I've wrestled with this, I've thought, you know, it's really interesting. When I go speak at other churches, I get to be prophetic. Um, not that I'd want to be prophetic every week. I like to teach. But sometimes there are things that I feel like God births in me that I have to say to the church. It's a lot easier for me to do that when I, when I go to another church. I often begin my sermon by going, hey, I love being at other churches. It's kind of fun. I don't notice anything that's wrong with the PowerPoint or the worship or anything. So I kind of just get to sit into it. And then even more than that um, is I realize that no matter what I say or, or if it's, even if it's heresy, um, I don't, have to, I don't have to get your emails. On, I'd say it a lot nicer, actually. People usually laugh. This sounds wrong. It's coming out wrong. Um, but I, but I kind of like, it's kind of fun for me because um, Monday morning, your pastor's going to get all the emails, not me, right? And it's, it's, it's kind of a way of joking and saying, look, I can come in without fear, without fear. When we bring people into Antioch, they get to be prophetic, Oftentimes they can say things just very, very matter-of-factly and, and straightforwardly. And sometimes it's hard and we wrestle with it uh, as they're being prophetic. But it's okay. Um, they're not here on Monday. If you don't like them or if, if you wrestled strongly with what they said, there's something important about, about that role. Paul traveled from church to church and had this apostolic prophetic role, even though Timothy, for the most part, sat into a congregation. And I think you need the teaching voice and the prophetic voice. John Wesley on horseback rode around to, to churches all over the place and brought a prophetic voice, even though there was voices or leaders in those communities that were teaching and bringing people along. We need both voices. And uh, when we realize that, we realize that oftentimes the lament is going to be God's lament coming through a voice with the courage to say what we might not otherwise hear. So lament, 
is tied to the obedient and faithful witness of a straightforward or prophetic voice upon the call of God. We have to have a category for that. Turn to Daniel 9, if you will. Daniel 9 is just one book over. It's after Ezekiel. Um, last big chunk of scripture that I'll read. But Daniel has uh, a prayer that he prays. Daniel chapter 9. Um, if you remember the story, Daniel was young when he was carted off into exile with the rest of the Israelites. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. But one specific thing that it means is he actually wasn't at the age of accountability yet where, where his mistakes were somehow what God was really judging, at least the way we would view it, right? He wasn't old enough yet to be the guy that was responsible somehow for the sin of Israel that God was judging with this exile. He was, he was just a young boy. So listen now to the prayer of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1. In the year of Darius son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, and in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word that the Lord had given to Jeremiah the prophet, uh, the prophet of lament, that desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, he laments to God. And I prayed this, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. People of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame because we sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away refusing to obey you. And he goes on, um, continuing with the same thing. Uh, I just want to... Verse 16, the second part, we'll just read all verse 16. He continues the same way. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. The iniquities of our ancestors. There's this, there's an aspect of theology called corporate sin and corporate responsibility that Daniel is modeling here that we don't have a, a tradition for in the church. We don't usually speak, uh, speak of, of being guilty for the sins of other people, the sins of our ancestors, the sins of our forefathers. We like to say, hey, I didn't do that. I wasn't a part of that. So you can't really hold me responsible. We see that lament includes both a, a, a repentance over our own sins, personal sins, and personal suffering, lamenting uh, that my body is broken, Job lamented, etc. So personal sins, personal suffering. And lament also covers corporate sins, 
and corporate suffering. Um, where, where we as a people are, say, oppressed. Most of us probably haven't experienced this, but the slaves in America that were all, all of them under this oppression, they sang songs and spirituals of lament because they were trapped under the power that kept them there, and they cried out to God, just like the Israelites uh, or the Hebrews when they were slaves in Egypt cried out to God and God heard their cry. So lament because of corporate suffering, the pain of all of our people or the pain of all this, but also corporate guilt. I was in December at um, Brian Stevenson's place. Um, Brian Stevenson works with uh, wrongfully convicted uh, inmates, many of them on death row. There's been uh, some 140, I think, to 170 people freed off of death row because they were wrongfully convicted. DNA evidence, going back and looking at ballistics, etc. Unbelievable. Um, we got to meet someone that had just been out uh, four months. I think I told the story after being in prison for over 30 years. And it was powerful. But behind us on the wall, they had <clears throat> jars with dirt in it from all over the south. And it was really interesting. The dirt, it was this mosaic of color. Uh, oranges and reds and browns and, and the dirt in these jars was, was put in a certain order and it was dirt from a lynching site of, of almost every, every person who'd been lynched in the South under Jim Crow. And they'd sent teams out to those locations. They had been researching it. They have the, most, the, the biggest body of research anywhere in the country on this and they, they go, went and got a jar and they're trying to name this and lament kind of what this means. And the thing that really stuck out to me was uh, a short video he did. He said, listen, um, Germany, you go there now. You don't see a, a Hitler high school. You don't see a Goebbels uh, high school. You don't see a, a Nazi named football team or soccer team. Uh, you don't see a commemoration in the, in the city square to the SS he goes, you don't have anything kind of commemorating um, th those who perpetrated evil. He goes, but you have a lot of monuments, uh, Auschwitz, others, that, that commemorate the victims of injustice. <clears throat> and then he showed us a Google map where they dropped a pin over all of the high schools that were named after a Confederate soldier or where the team was named the Rebels or something like this. And all of the city squares that had a monument to Stonewall Jackson or et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was basically covered about one quarter of, of the map of the United States. Covered it. You couldn't really see land underneath the dots. And then over the top of that, they dropped dots for all of the markers the historic markers or monuments that commemorated um, great injustice, either uh, large bodies of people killed in, in race riots right after the Civil War or lynchings. And there was, I think, maybe four or five pins that dropped. And two of them dropped right on their location of their offices where they had named uh, by the river where there was um, an auction block uh, and then right out in front of their office where, where a, a momentous thing had happened kind of in the abolition of, of slavery in America. And we don't have language for corporate guilt in America. I have friends that are pastors that this week, this week their Lenten reflections were writing articles and stories talking about some of the 
the things that have happened in our history that we all, because it's a we, we all bear some corporate responsibility to lament before we can even come to the mess that we find ourselves in today and try and untangle what that looks like, that shalom isn't fully there because things are not as they ought to be. But we don't really look at this because we don't have language for corporate guilt. Um, I could say a lot more about that. I'm not going to. Um, Other than this, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There's a corporate aspect that has to be there to our lament. The gospel, Pete and I were talking, and he reminded me of this uh, wonderful, well-worn phrase, but the gospel extends our circle of concern. It necessarily extends our circle of concerns. There's no way, uh, other way to be Christian. We, we, we end up being very concerned with the world. And you could say, Ken, how does that logically play itself out? I don't have the ability to be wrapping my mind around all of that injustice or extending my concern that way. And I'm saying as we grow to be more and more like Christ, it necessarily will happen. Because Jesus' sphere of concern, he died for the sins of the world, was a pretty big sphere of concern. And so we don't need to worry about our sphere of concern and is there a a terminal limit. We just need to look at Christ and let ourselves be changed or impacted or molded or shaped um, or fall more in love with him. But as the vine um, feeds the branches, as Christ feeds us and we're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, the necessary outworking of this is that we're going to have an extended sphere of concern. Um, sackcloth and ashes goes with lament. It shows up some 47 times in scripture. You've probably heard the phrase sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Revelation 6.12, I don't know if we have it for the screen or not, um, but we see a little bit of what uh, sackcloth is here. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the whole moon turned red. Sackcloth was actually a black cloth made um, from the hair of goats. So even like the, the goat hair shirts that we read about in church history where people were kind of trying to punish themselves, they're just doing the biblical tradition of sackcloth. And it would be wood ashes, so burning wood from fires, which is what they cooked on. There's plenty of ash around, and it's basically sprinkling it on the head and down over the body. And it's this, this very graphic portrayal of mourning or lament. Just this, I'm in a position, not just for an hour, but for days, possibly even weeks, where I am extending that discipline of waiting on the Lord as I lament. Um, Pete and I were talking and we were kind of totaling up what we dealt with this week. Um, Two people I talked to where where divorce has been been initiated. Um, two people I talked to that are going through cancer. Pete did a, did a funeral for a four-month-old uh, four baby yesterday. Um, I know of two people that lost their jobs suddenly this week. Um, the, the list goes on just in one week uh, of grief or pain or suffering. If you're not going through it, then look to your left, look to your right, and the row in front of you, the row behind you, because we are going through, we go through pain and suffering. If everybody here that was intense pain or dealing with intense suffering in your, your life was outwardly dressed in 
and a, a cloth, a, a black cloth of goat's hair, and with ash over them, what would it teach us today as we're sitting here? Picture it. Look at, look at this room and this audience. If, if all the people that were in pain were in sackcloth and ashes, what it would teach us is that lament absolutely would have to be a part of our normal everyday vocabulary and, and part of the vocabulary that we, we use as we talk about God and to God. And we've sanitized it. We've driven the pain and the suffering in and kind of away from a corporate Christian communal uh, reality, felt experience reality. As we go through Lent, as we sit into this today, uh, today as Pete's going to come up and lead us into communion, we're reminding ourselves that life is messy, that God is mysterious, and that somehow we walk in the tension of faith between those two realities, and that part of that language is caught up in this concept of lament.